A lot of people think about 9-11 on and around 9-11, but I think from my nerd standpoint, I'm always thinking about how things affect the construction industry. That's just where my brain goes. Well, 9-11 changed the world in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And one big way that it, it changed the world had to do with the construction industry. Welcome to Critical Path with Mary and Jason, a podcast about business development, company culture, and loving the place you work just a little bit more. This is episode 68, and we're talking to Brian Polis. Uh, he is the Director of Health and Safety for Graham Construction. We're really excited to have you on today for our September 11th special episode. Thanks. Glad to be here. So, Brian, could you give us a little bit of uh, insight in terms of who you are and where you came from? Sure, sure. So, I've been in construction for 22 years uh, and basically started off in operations and then made the transition into full-time safety around 2006. And I've been a full-time safety practitioner ever since. Um, I am a board-certified safety professional. I'm a construction safety and health technician and a construction risk and insurance specialist, as well as a certified uh, trainer uh, for the construction industry. So, And so in your history, you've worked across the West Coast. You've worked in Hawaii. It's super interesting. It seems like you've seen quite a bit in terms of uh, different safety practices. Uh, we chatted a little about how we're jealous of your time in Hawaii. Totally jealous. <laughs> totally jealous. Uh, and uh, so you, you work for Graham, and I know that Graham, are they a Canadian-owned company? Yeah, our, we're corporately based out of Calgary, mm-hmm. and we operate across Canada and actually across the U.S. We have uh, offices in the U.S. in Seattle and Spokane. Uh, we have offices in Colorado as well as Nebraska, and we work with some national clients. Yeah, and so we were chatting before uh, we started here briefly about the, the fact that you were on the kingdom. Uh, yes. The Kingdom demolition, and uh, that, that's just a super exciting uh, time to be around construction because I think that is kind of a memorable uh, point. So, what sort of like, year was that? What year was that? So the Kingdom. So I was on the Kingdom project from '99 to 2002. For, so the demolition plus the rebuild of of the new stadium, um, the implosion itself um, was 2000, I believe. Yeah, right and around. So, so what was your role on that project for the demolition? So I started off uh, as a field engineer. And so that was before I had made a transition into full-time safety. So uh, operationally based. And one of my jobs was to support the demolition crew through the drilling and preparation of the king, you know, getting the kingdom ready for the implosion. Um, and so that, that involved removing the roof uh, and getting back to basically the concrete structure as much as possible and doing a lot of soft demolition on the interior spaces. Again, the idea was to basically have a, a concrete shell uh, that was going to be imploded and then all the concrete then was ultimately gonna be recycled and was recycled. Uh, much of it was used actually on site uh, to raise the existing grade about three feet. Wow. So the new stadium's about three feet over uh, where the kingdom used to be. So it was actually uh, ground up on site, uh, spread around and then the remainder was, was trucked off. And- and, and so we're, we're talking on the anniversary of 9-11, what, uh, 19th anniversary. And wow. I think that, yeah, put that in perspective. Uh, and a lot of things have changed in the construction industry, in the building industry since 9-11 related to what we discovered uh, from the fallout of that event. So what, what are some things that, that uh, took place on, on the Kingdom demolition that maybe wouldn't be executed the same way today. 
Well, I think certainly uh, the industry has matured a lot uh, as it relates to air quality in general. Um, so I think when you look at things like silica exposure um, and, and exposure to other building materials, as you guys noted, um, that we learned about really uh, had a kind of a crash course study in it uh, post 9-11 with the first responders uh, that were on the ground and, and working through that environment. Um, you know, the considerations of, you know, looking at what what a large release of, of silica and, and other building materials looks like and, and how to best deal with that, I think certainly today would be uh, looked at um, perhaps differently or uh, in a way where, you know, just with the information that's come out, it's certainly a higher level of awareness. Yeah. So I'm, I'm super versed in construction, but I'm not a safety professional. I'm more of the type of person that I know something's not safe when I see it, but I couldn't necessarily pin down uh, the, the definition of why it's not safe. Uh, so what, for, for the folks who are listening, what level of silica is safe? Are you, are you aware of that? Well, so it, so it greatly depends. So what I would preface that, that That's discussion, a yeah, what I would preface the discussion by saying is that what, what makes something hazardous is really predicated on two factors. Yeah. Uh, the, the concentration of whatever substance you're dealing with mm -hmm. uh, or the dose, if you will, and then the uh, amount of exposure time, right? So those two factors really are gonna uh, determine what's hazardous and what's not, because quite frankly, water is hazardous. Sure. If you're exposed to enough of it for long enough, uh, same with sugar and, and things that, that normally are, are good. So yeah. that's really the important thing to, I think, realize. For construction in particular, uh, there's obviously regulations on permissible exposure limits based on uh, an eight-hour, you know, time-weighted average. So industrial hygienists spend uh, most of their their function and, the, and most of their careers really looking at substances and then how much of that substance over what period of time is safe and what's dangerous. And so for uh, for the general public, those oftentimes are either uh, developed or created differently than they would be for a workplace exposure. And there's a lot of different reasons for that, but OSHA is going to, and the Association of, of Industrial Hygienists is going to really determine for a workplace exposure what that looks like. Um, and then for the general public, that's going to be more like perhaps the EPA, um, the Department of Ecology and things like that. And so really it, for, it varies. That's the, that's the easy answer. Well, and, I, and I think the, if you think about the way that our industry has changed from the time of the kingdom uh, to now, it, it's pretty incredible the, the steps that we've taken and, and the knowledge that we've added to the conversation because I think the, the consideration when, when we demolished the kingdom, it was just a, a cloud of dust. So can you, can you uh, describe or can you share the story about what it looked like? Oh, watching it happen, I was yeah. going to ask that. That's, that's yeah, I mean, it was it was um, definitely a sight to be seen. I'll, I'll say that. Um, I think it was a pretty historic day for for the folks that were in Seattle at the time. Um, I, I got quite a few or had access to quite a few aerial photos um, that were taken on the day of the implosion and during the implosion and subsequent. And um, one thing that just stands out is the amount of, of folks that were there um, to really see the skyline of Seattle change forever um, in a huge way. Um, and so, uh, being at ground zero myself, I was on the corner of, uh, right at, right at FX Macquarie's for those that remember, uh, that restaurant. So right down, uh, by King street and occidental, uh, portions of the town. 
Um, and, and, you know, I think one thing that struck me is when, when the implosion occurred, uh, obviously it generated quite a cloud uh, of dust. And, you know, at that close proximity to the location, it actually darkened the sky. Um, and it felt, you know, there was a pretty eerie feeling. It happened at 8.30 in the morning. And so it was a beautiful, sunny, uh, for those that remember, beautiful, sunny, uh, crystal blue skies. It was just a beautiful Seattle morning. Um, and it did, have a, it did have a breeze so that they were watching the weather that day. And one of the reasons that they wanted the breeze was to quickly, as quickly as possible, dissipate um, the, the dust cloud uh, that would be generated. And so, but it was, it was significant uh, from a dust cloud perspective. And, and I think if you can, you can find the news footage and, and some of the still photographs, it's pretty impressive um, of the plume uh, yeah. that was generated for that. And, um, and so, you know, seeing that sky darken uh, and the cloud come over, I will say that it, uh, you know, my recollection is that it did pass pretty quickly um, and then start to move into, you know, kind of throughout downtown Seattle as it began to disperse uh, up. So it, it really kind of blew, I would say, to the north, northeast slightly probably was the direction it was really going in. But there was quite a, you know, a monumental cleanup effort after that, um, because obviously uh, cleaning up the city was important and needed to be done. So there was an army of street sweepers uh, that were procured and at the ready. Um, I, I forget uh, the exact number, but it was, it was probably over 60, 60 or 70 street sweepers that were, that were procured for that. Um, and quite a bit of effort was, was put into that. When you even shared that there was a, a public, public relations component to, to the demolition of the kingdom, uh, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, well, there were several, there were several uh, factors needed to occur before the actual implosion of the kingdom, um, just from a risk and, and hazard perspective. One of which was uh, there was actually a detailed survey conducted of all the surrounding buildings. Mm -hmm. And we really had to get a good sense of what, what, is, what was the existing condition. Um, and again, we're talking Pioneer Square. So really old buildings, uh, many timber buildings um, and brick buildings. And this also was before the Nisqually earthquake um, that happened as well. And so um, again, you know, the state of these buildings uh, today, and many have already been upgraded seismically based on the Nisqually earthquake. It, that hadn't occurred yet when we were dropping the kingdom. Right. Uh, so we knew this was going to generate quite quite a lot of energy. It happens to be on the Denny regrade portion of town. So it's a very um, uh, low density soil type to begin with. So we knew that this was going to happen. And I think the beast mode quake actually um, uh, is evidence of how jiggly the earth is around that, that entire area. Yeah. Um, so a detailed survey was conducted there just to look at, you know, what was cracked, what, what was existing, what were these conditions like? Um, so that was a big, big part of the outreach. And then aside from that, it was really working with uh, the surrounding neighbors. There's, you know, that part of town has offices, there's residential uh, condominiums in very close proximity. Um, the main uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe and, and Amtrak train station and tracks are about 55 or were about 55 to 100 feet uh, off the side of the kingdom mm -hmm. itself. So, you know, doing all those surveys, working with the stakeholders, uh, with the railroad, with the residents, the homeowners associations, uh, and the various property owners, um, all, all was a huge, huge public uh, relations outreach, as was working with the businesses uh, that were going to be impacted. Because again, 
um, on the day of the implosion, we had to have a zone set up mm -hmm. uh, that really precluded people from, from being in certain areas and certain places and had to be relocated or closed temporarily to facilitate that. Well, and you had even shared that, that there was a bit of hype that was put into it, trying to add excitement to the event so that there were fewer detractors. And I think that that's, that's a really interesting element. And then see this once in a lifetime mm -hmm. event. Because many Absolutely. Especially in Seattle, it's very easy to get people to come out of the woodwork and, and protest or have a problem with construction work of any sort. Uh, and I think trying to, to move the needle in terms of, of the way that we feel about a given project, there's, there's a lot of wisdom to that from, from a, a project delivery standpoint. If I'm trying to push this project forward, I need to make people feel good about it and get excited about it, as opposed to being intimidated by a changed skyline. Yeah, absolutely. No, there was, and I think that, you know, it helped that it was a professional sporting venue. It helps that Seattle has the, the drive and the desire uh, to support the pro teams that we do in general in the marketplace. So I think there were a lot of factors that were, that were kind of lining up to, to really make that a much uh, easier facilitation in terms of the pitch of, you know, we're changing the skyline. Um, I don't know that, you know, you either loved the kingdom or you hated the kingdom, right? And I think that helped as well. It wasn't, uh, it certainly was an iconic structure that had been a part of the skyline uh, since, you know, 1976. Um, but I do think there were, there were people that were happy to get rid of it and see, a, see what we have now in, in uh, CenturyLink Field. So I think that, uh, you know, again, all those factors lining up made it a little bit more uh, exciting for people to want to see. On, and the time between uh, when, when the kingdom was imploded and 9-11, it was actually not that far apart. I was thinking yeah. while I was listening to the description mm -hmm. that doing an implosion like that shortly after 9-11 mm -hmm. would have been really probably traumatic well, for a lot of people. And, and especially after, if, if because essentially after the building's uh, trade center went down, um, there was a lot of information that was gathered from mm -hmm. all of the, the impact of, of breathing building materials mm -hmm. and what that does. Maybe even the considerations of working with the building materials uh, maybe should change a little we bit. We learned a lot about yeah. how those materials so people interact. So how do you think that, that uh, our approach or our relationship with building materials changed after 9-11? Well, I mean, I think there's certainly a greater awareness across the board, um, not only in the, the industry of construction, but just the general public and many other industries now, certainly first responders, obviously, um, in terms of, you know, what, what does air quality look like? Why is it important? Um, why are, why are the, the controls that we put in place important? What are the best controls to put into place? I mean, when you look at a 9-11 event, um, obviously that was unplanned. Obviously, it was uh, a huge uh, scale incident. And so um, a lot of the quote unquote best mitigation strategies from, th from a silica standpoint, just for an example, um, you always want to try to use what's called the hierarchy of controls and you want to focus on, you know, eliminating the hazard uh, as your best choice, right? The worst choice you can do is actually put somebody in personal protective equipment. Um, and then the, there's, a, there's a reason for that is really that there's nothing wrong with personal protective equipment, but there's a lot to get wrong with personal protective equipment. And because there's we have a lot of opportunity for user error. Exactly. The human factor, you're, you're basically relying on a barrier that if everything is used and done correctly, it'll work. It, it's going to create a barrier between you and a hazard, but that hazard still exists. So if anything happens to the barrier or how that barrier interfaces with the hazard, i.e. that it gets past the barrier, 
then you're still exposed to whatever hazard you have. And so, you know, I think the awareness is important because it gets people to wear PPE maybe a little bit more effectively or not fight trying to wear PPE uh, a little bit more. Um, but again, um, when you look at things like a planned implosion or a large scale demolition project or any really um, planned building activity, you can, you can better plan in uh, mitigation strategies that are going to be more effective. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think you would ever get away from personal protective equipment. I mean, I think you, it's kind of like a belt and suspenders approach uh, in many ways, uh, but you certainly should be doing other things um, that, that would mitigate uh, that. Now, given a project like imploding a, a kingdom, which uh, was, was in the top five, certainly largest concrete structures in the world at the time, um, can be a little bit difficult, right? So, uh, for example, one of, the, one of the key mitigation strategies for air quality is, is simply, in construction, it's simply wetting uh, material down so you're not generating a dust cloud. And we saw that with the viaduct when that yeah. was coming down. I mean, exactly. Imagine how much water was used to control yeah. And we certainly used our beyond our fair share of water during the kingdom process in the processes that we could do that, um, you know, on an actual implosion day, um, you know, that, that was not a feasible uh, control to utilize, mm -hmm. but certainly during the other aspects, soft demolition, removal of the roof and things like that. Um, water, water is a very good and effective control as is dilution ventilation. And so one of the things that people do, uh, tend to look at when they're they're looking at these hazards is you know are you doing something indoors where you don't have very good airflow uh, or in an area where you don't have very good airflow or are you outside where you do have good airflow and and again I think we spoke about this a little bit earlier with the dust cloud picking a day where there's a, a stiff enough breeze mm -hmm. to dilute and push that hazard away um, so you know even simple things as keeping somebody positioned downwind. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, or sorry, upwind, uh, so that it, when the cloud, you know, whatever that hazard is, it's not coming directly into your breathing zone. When you could even see uh, the, the value of, of doing the implosion during a rainstorm. That's what I was just going to ask. Yeah. Nothing about it. If you did it during rain, would yeah. that be better? You know, I mean, I think on a large scale like that, unless you were having like a torrential you know, historic biblical rain, yeah. uh, it probably wouldn't be too effective, right? Because you're dealing with, you know, on the kingdom, some of those members, I mean, there were several, several feet thick yeah. of concrete. So yeah. um, I think it, it could have helped uh, potentially, but yeah, I think you would have had, uh, it would have had to have been a significant uh, rainfall for that. A lot of rain in Our, Seattle rain is not really like that. <laughs> yeah. Our slow motion rain would have, would have tickled it maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that in the Midwest, that you walk outside for 10 seconds and you're soaked head to toe. Right, right. That's just Tuesday. Uh, so in, in what ways are you aware of that, that building materials or that the industry has changed since 9-11? So after as, we, and as a result of that. After, after we got sure. a little bit more information or, or uh, data on, on what those materials can do to folks. Sure. Well, I, what I can tell you is from an from a occupational safety and health industry perspective, <clears throat> many regulations were updated. Mm -hmm. uh, so the OSHA regulation has been updated uh, here in Washington state. Um, we have to meet or exceed uh, the OSHA standards as they're updated or changed. And so uh, that certainly impacted us. So there's been a new, uh, <clears throat> relatively new, I'll say, uh, silica rule uh, that's been in effect. Um, we're actually coming up on I believe the one year anniversary, I think it was in effect in October. We heard a lot about that one. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we're getting, we're, so we're getting very close to that. Um, and so that was one effect right now it, it took many years. I think you guys, you know, we're, we're talking about the 19th anniversary. So it took a while, um, but that change did occur. And so the standards have been updated and there's a, a much stronger emphasis um, in on silica in particular. But I think, you know, really what we're seeing in the industry is as uh, science improves, as research improves in general, I would say, um, the way we work and look at any hazardous material um, or, or any chemical, really. Um, so when I say hazardous material, I'm not just speaking about silica or asbestos or lead, uh, but something as simple as a paint. Um, you know, there's been changes to our safety data sheets that we used to call material safety data sheets, MSDS, now our SDSs. Um, we have the global harmonized standard that came out. Um, and was phased in between, you know, 2011 and, and 2015. Um, so over this period of time, um, regulations, I think, because the awareness went up, uh, people said, you know, it's not, it's not good to be exposed to substances and hazards that may not hurt you today, but 20, 30 years down the road, um, certainly uh, will. And I think a big, another big driver of that was asbestos mm -hmm. uh, and, and how, uh, older workers now are really dealing with a lot of the effects um, that happen. And I think as a safety practitioner, one of the biggest challenges that I face, people are really good at avoiding things that are going to hurt them really bad right now, right? So if I know a saw is going to chop off my arm or my finger, I'm going to be really careful with that. But if I'm in a room and I'm breathing and I don't really feel a problem and I, it, that's not really impacting me, um, and I don't, maybe I don't know better. Maybe I haven't been trained very well. And you um, don't have to pay the it's price slow motion. Year. Yeah. yeah, it's slow motion. So right. I don't feel it. And, and people are far, um, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, we, we are, uh, from an, uh, an intuitive standpoint, we are far more risk averse to things that are going to hurt us right now than that thing that may hurt us potentially. We don't even know. It may hurt us, you know, 20 or 30 years down the road. And, and when we're 20, we're all bulletproof. Yeah. Right. When, when we're 20, we, nothing can, can stop us. And I think that uh, I was there. I, I was on the roof. Yeah. No harness, no, no straps, yep. no tie off, nothing, no training. So uh, it's a, it's a, it's a hard subject in general, I think to really drive the awareness and the change. Cause it, it, it we are talking about hazards that are different than, it's certainly in construction than what seems to be the most pressing, which I know I don't want to fall off a building yes. or, I know, or I know I don't want to, you know, get uh, stuck in an excavation that caves in. So I, I have one more big question for you. And that is uh, there is a sentiment that, that as safety standards increase, uh, and, and this is just my personal opinion that, that the construction industry as a whole resists change. We, we resist change by and large. We, we, uh, try to do what our fathers did. We try to stick with tradition uh, kind of as a people. And so it's difficult to move the needle. It took how many years, 18 years for the silica rule to come into play. Um, so there is kind of this, this resistance to, to change or rules that, that make people more safe. Uh, yeah. Well, and that's kind of our theory is that that's what causes construction to be so resistant to change is if you build a bridge in a whole new way mm -hmm. and that doesn't work out well, a there lot of people can get hurt. So there's, there's this sense in the industry that as we become more aware of what the threats are and as we apply more rules or regulations or policies or practices, more PPE uh, to, to that situation, uh, we're not going to be able to get any work done. 
the the burden of carrying all of the safety regulations and meeting all of the safety requirements for small companies they oftentimes believe it's impossible um, what what advice or what direction would you give to that sentiment well i mean i think number one the the topic of safety in general can be very overwhelming uh, because there is a lot to deal with um, certainly if you're a smaller company or a small business um, you know based on just your your resources uh, that you have available that is that is a challenge without a doubt. Um, I don't know that construction necessarily is is resistant to change. I think what I would classify it is that there's a reason why we continue to use concrete, mm-hmm. right? And when you look at how long concrete uh, has been around and who invented it, um, you know, thousands and thousands of years, and and we still use a lot of concrete uh, in a lot of structures. Um, I think because building as an industry is so risk heavy. Mm-hmm. That when you know something is proven and you know something works, you're you're managing risk in yeah. a lot of ways, right? So I think to your point on the bridge example that you gave, if you know something's going to be safe and work, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Now we do see a lot of innovation, um, obviously in in different methodologies. So I don't know that it's so much resistant to change, but certainly trying to manage an, an area of risk that's manageable, right? And, and our whole um, industry is risk. It is right, exactly. Life. I mean, that's how general contractors make their fee. Mm-hmm. We're risk managers, right? We're taking risk from an owner and saying, we can coordinate this and get it built for you more effectively than you could. And manage and so, the risk. Exactly, we're gonna manage the risk for a fee. So um, back to the safety portion of the question, um, I do think that you know if you look at regulations in general, um, certainly they can drive cost, uh, but certainly they can also save in other areas. And so if you have a healthier workforce, if you have a more productive workforce, uh, if you have uh, a workforce that's going to be able to work longer, um, you know, and not maybe be um, subjected to a bunch of hazards that would otherwise cut their cut their lives short and increase your turnover and your training and all these other practical things that businesses have to worry about as well. Um, I think you have to look at the, the situation holistically and say, okay, yeah, we have to adjust to this new silica rule. That's certainly going to maybe involve some new tools, some new training, some new processes. Um, and so that's going to cost money. But on the flip side, um, are you going to be, you know, some of these large companies that are facing lots of tr- issues trying to pay for asbestos related problems right now, right? Or other things down the road. So there's certainly a trade-off. And I would say that, you know, you have to be smart and you have to be practical about how these regul, how you interact with these regulations. I think there's a lot of different ways. Really, when you look at most regulations, I would just say they're performance standards. Mm -hmm. You have to achieve this level of safety or this level of performance how you choose to do that can be quite varied. And I think that the companies that are the most successful are the ones that uh, can really effectively utilize their practitioners to develop really creative solutions to achieve the best outcome with the least amount of, of cost. And I think that the key to that is, is the idea that when you're thinking about, you said holistically, and, and what I take from that is when you're thinking about the big picture, when you're thinking about, uh, the, the lifespan of your workforce and your individual workers, when you're thinking about their production over their career, as opposed to, I have these workers for six months and then I'm going to turn them out and I'm going to get new ones. 
when that's your mentality, uh, then I think that you'll you'll you see the divide happen there, where where you're talking about different types of companies, you're talking about different spirits of companies. Absolutely, it's a different culture. It yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. And and in my experience, even if you make mistakes as it relates to safety, even if you you get something wrong and all of your paperwork isn't filled out perfectly, my my experience working with OSHA and LNI is that if your heart is in the right place and you you are making active efforts to do the right thing and you have documented a history that that's the case that that you're putting your your employees and your team first uh, with regard to safety then i think that that the world is much more uh, lenient or 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 they're they're willing to work with you as opposed to as opposed to you're on your own and we're just here to punish you yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it definitely varies, I would say, from agency to agency and, and area to area. Um, but I would agree with you. Almost every regulatory body, as it pertains to workplace safety, does have what they call a good faith mm-hmm. a factor that calculates into um, whether you get a penalty or what type of penalty you get. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, you know, I think, you know, along those lines, too, I think it's really important. What I what I really try to do uh, is from my perspective in safety is really spread the word that a lot of times people think it's about going from a hundred percent risk to zero risk. Right. And that's the solution that they always look for. And I think that's really, you know, pardon the pun, but I think that's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you can minimize 20% of the risk, start there. Right. And and that would be my advice to the small businesses that we were talking about before uh, that can feel overwhelmed with safety is you definitely need to meet, the, you know, the legal intent and the requirements of the law to keep your employees safe, without a doubt. I think that's a moral responsibility as much as it is a legal responsibility. Yeah. Um, with that being said, don't dismiss a solution that might minimize your risk by 25 or 30 percent mm-hmm. because you're holding out to get to zero mm-hmm. percent. So, I mean, I think it's it really needs to be based on continuous improvement mm-hmm. and, you know, start somewhere and then really focus on how can you continuously improve that and drive those results to keep lowering that you know down further and further so one one last trick question for you Uh, who at a construction company should have the authority to stop work in the case of a safety concern has to be everybody Everybody on everybody that's physically present on that site that's knowledgeable about that hazard has to have the authority, without a doubt, to either stop the work or make the correction. And I think, again, uh, sending the message to your people that empowers them that even if they don't know how to fix it, we can always fix it by stopping. Yep. Now, that's the worst uh, four-letter word you can say in construction. Yes, it really is. Um, and, and we know what, what words we like to use in construction from time to time. But yes, nobody likes the word stop. Yeah, stop uh, but word in construction. <laughs> but, if you, but if you say that, um, and it's really to you know, save a life or something, uh, then, then that's critical. Everybody has to be able to do that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, you got it right. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we really appreciate you being with us. And uh, thanks for spending time on the Critical Path. We will uh, see you next time. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. Take care. You can find us. You can find us. At www.thecriticalpathpodcast.com. You can find us at arcadewayfinding.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, Jason Sturgeon, Mary Sturgeon, 
We're all over LinkedIn. Yep. Arcade Wayfinding. Like, love, share. Subscribe. Celebrate. Yeah. And we'll see you on the next one. We're not going to, I don't think we're going to have any outtakes. We, we did 9-11 safety, so we were pretty serious. Gorilla podcasting. Pretty serious all the way through. Watch for it. Watch for it. <laughs>